good to be back with you this morning. Uh, joy for the ride, um, but especially to be here. Yeah, Lord willing, we we'll, shall be going back to Italy at the beginning of December. And uh, happy to go back, but of course, it is always a a mixture of feelings and things we reach out to, things we leave behind. Um, the Lord has been good. We had a, a wonderful time there in Alabama and uh, blessed meetings, uh, blessed people. And uh, I'll tell you more about the books later. <laughs> but uh, the Lord has been good and continues to be. Um, let us open our Bibles to Philippians in chapter 2 uh, this morning. And... Uh, According to good tradition, yeah, this is a time of thanksgiving. And in spite of many things we could complain about, and, uh, and we certainly do, I found that Americans are just as good complainers as, as Italians are. But you have reasons, many reasons to complain, yet we can be grateful, yet for so much. Even remembering that whatever is happening, in this world is but temporary. There is a new world coming. But also another thought is that <clears throat> um, as we want to be grateful for past, present and future blessings, we must always remember that a price was paid for the blessings that we had. And it really doesn't matter whether they are uh, material moral, spiritual, emotional, social. It all goes back to the price that our Lord paid that we may be redeemed. And so, uh, as we are grateful to the Lord, let us also remember His death for us and His humiliation for our sake. And so we'll be reflecting on this from Philippians in chapter 2. And... Uh, of course, this letter is one marvelous letter <laughs> written from the prison of Rome by the Apostle Paul. Paul had gone to Jerusalem, you remember, to give the collection that he had made, the, the, the collection of money that he had made for the poor among the Jews. So he took this collection of money taken from the Gentile churches as an expression of care and of love because Paul cared so much about the unity of the church he wanted to see unity in the church among the churches but you know when he took that money which was very well received he was immediately arrested <laughs> and he was kept under arrest for uh, two years and then taken to Rome and he spent another two years in prison over there. So, it does often happen that evil may come to us even as we try to do good. The fact that we do good doesn't mean that we will be paid back uh, or receive good from the hands of men. So it happened to Paul. But while he was there, he wrote this letter 
he wrote several letters, and this is one of them, the letter to the church of Philippi. And as you can tell from the first verses of chapter 2, again, he comes back to the question of unity, unity in the church. Therefore, if there be any consolation in Christ, or we could even change that if into sins, <laughs> since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. How much truth is contained in these words, no tongue can fully tell. But we will try to tackle this text this morning and expand on it and even use it as a foundation for this afternoon later on. Um, Again, the first verses, it is very apparent. Paul stresses the necessity of unity. Unity among Christians. Um, Not unity just doctrinally, but also spiritually in the affection that we have for one another, in the humility in the spirit with which we'll deal with one another. So much so that Paul says in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And as a way to... um, Example to give an example of how we should do that, and at the same time an incentive as to why we should do that. He sets before us the Lord Jesus. So he tells us, be this way with one another, treat one another this way, because this is how Christ was. This is how he acted and behaved toward us. So he says, what exactly, in verses 5 on, let us consider with a certain attention these verses because they will represent the foundation for our thoughts this morning and this afternoon. Uh, First of all, he says, uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now there is a an important word or verb that is used here by Paul. Um, 
and the verb that we translate, let this mind, or let this be your inner deep conviction, because this is a word that communicates both uh, depth and thought. It is difficult to translate it in any language, <laughs> in English or Italian, because the Greek word implies both. Uh, the, the actual noun of the word uh, is the word for diaphragm. So the the parts around the heart. So this is not just in thinking, but it also has a visceral depth to it. So could be translated such as uh, let this uh, visceral sentiment <laughs> or inner understanding or depth of conviction or this inner attitude of mind. These are all. You know, possible ways in which we could render the Greek word. But, so, Paul is talking about vis- something visual, something that is deep. It doesn't just lie on the surface. And so, this be your mind. This be your thought, your attitude, your disposition. And let this be in you, in you, inside of you, as it was in Christ Jesus. Some would translate this, let this mind be among you, but it doesn't seem to be uh, the proper translation because in you, as in Christ Jesus. So, uh, Paul is talking really about something that we should, an attitude that we should have inside of us, within us. Uh, What is this attitude? is the attitude of Christ who being in the form of God he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God or this equality with God something to hang on to in every way but he made himself of no reputation and the word there is also very important is a word that Paul uses for example, in First in First Corinthians, when it says that you know, philosophy has a tendency of making void the gospel, making the gospel void, uh, philosophical speech and philosophical reasoning. So that's exactly the word that Paul uses here. Christ made himself void. He emptied himself. So he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself to the extent of making himself appear as someone useless and valueless, so of no reputation. Taking, uh, how did he do that? He took the form of a servant. The word servant there is doulos, which actually is the word, as you know, as for bond slave. So as someone who has given up all uh, rights, and he's handed over his life to somebody else. So it's a very strong word. And so the contrast, of course, is between the form of God, which actually stresses the outward glory of God, the, the form, the outward glory of God. And the parallel is the form of a servant, the outward appearance of a servant. So that's how Christ lowered himself and he emptied himself 
so as to set aside, especially, says Paul, the manifestation of the glory of his nature. See, he was God, but he did not come revealing himself in the glory of God. <laughs> he came uh, giving up the outward manifestation of that glory, taking upon himself instead the appearance and the form and the behavior of a doulos, of a bond slave. Um, and then again, he continues um, the form of his servant in coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So he lowered himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death, the infamous, uh, the cruel, the agonizing death, and shameful death of the cross. Uh, a point that should not be missed in all of these amazing words, and should we have time, you know, we could ruminate over these words for several weeks, uh, but we don't have time for that. But at least let us catch this one thought, that uh, the verbs here are, are active. The verbs here are active. So, Paul says, uh, verse 6, uh, verse 5, let this mind be in you, let this inner visceral sentiment be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, that being uh, underscores the fact that uh, he, he continued to be God, he could not but be God, and yet uh, he presented himself in the form of a slave. Uh, consider it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. So this means, doesn't mean that he was emptied, but that he emptied himself. It doesn't mean that he was humbled, even, even uh, like in verse 8, but he humbled himself. These are all active verbs. It is something that he has done. He has done. Even when it says later on in verse uh, 8, became obedient, in the original language, that verb is a middle verb. So, like you have an active verb, you do the action. Then you have a passive verb, the action is done to you. You're, you're, you're uh, not passive, but you're not active, but passive. And then there is a middle verb, which means that you do the action to yourself. You do the action to yourself. It's a reflective sort of an action. And this is exactly what Paul says. He became obedient. It could be translated, made himself obedient. <laughs> because obedience did not belong to his nature as God. God does not obey. That was not in the nature of the Son to obey as such. But he made himself obedient. So he lowered himself so that he would come to our rescue. It's a very um, a singular there in, in chapter 1 of John. You would remember that John says in that the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word became, again in the original, is a middle verb. <laughs> that means that 
si è fatto carne. He made himself flesh. He made himself. It was not made flesh, but he made himself flesh. So he he participated actively in lowering himself, in divesting himself of his glory to save us. So not something done to him against his will, but this was his inner sentiment. That's how that's how he felt. That was the inner sentiment. In fact, again, if we go back to Philippians chapter two, speaking of uh, again verse six, seven, eight, uh, look again at the contrast between again the verse five. Uh, let this inner visceral sentiment be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider a robber to be equal with God but made himself he emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant so as we said many of these thoughts have to do with the outward appearance of Christ this very lowly humble appearance outwardly but verse 5 says that it came from the inside and this is very important so outwardly he made himself look socially humble he became flesh that was already uh, a humiliation for him but also we know that he was born in a very humble place among a very in a very humble family and in every way he manifested that loneliness and that humility and that poverty but that outward humility corresponded to an inward sentiment it was not just an appearance it was truly humble truly humble so there was uh, the outward manifestation of that humility in his appearance and in his behavior reflected an inner sentiment and disposition now this is very important Um, so if he outwardly humbled himself it was because he was inwardly humble and so let us pause for a second and ruminate again over this thing. What does it mean and what does it imply? It implies a lot, <laughs> a lot. I think we could stay on this subject of the humility of Christ for a long time. Um, but first of all, Um, if the Lord humbled himself in time as he made himself flesh it means that humility must belong to his divine nature because of the son in his divine nature didn't have humility he would not have humbled himself it's very logical isn't it that's why we're saying 
is outward humiliation was an expression of an inward sentiment of humility. So this must mean, obviously, because there can be no contradiction between the inward and the outward in God. <laughs> what God is in, in His own nature and what God displays in His behavior outwardly or you know, in, in, in a way that we can see. There's no tension, there's no contradiction, there's no darkness in God. Everything is perfect, in perfect harmony. So, again, humility must be a quality and attribute belonging to the divine nature of the Son as God, as God. He was humble before He humbled Himself. He was humble before He actually historically humbled Himself in the Incarnation. Secondly, uh, this humility must have belonged to Him from eternity. It's not something that suddenly rose up in His nature just because uh, someone needed to be rescued. God is perfect. And if this is an attribute of His nature, it must have been there the whole time. Of course, we're speaking, we're speaking of eternal time, so for eternity. So we must believe, and I'm sure that we believe, that there was never a time in which uh, the Son was never humble. It was, it's always been humble. He's always had humility as part of his character. Which leads us to another consideration. <laughs> Let us look at uh, verse 6, because verse 6, along with other verses of Scripture, teaches us that uh, in his nature the Son is equal to the Father and equal to the Son. The three are one. They have the same attributes. Uh, so can it be that the Son alone has humility as a divine attribute and humility does not, is not also a characteristic of the Father or of the Spirit? Well, indeed, that cannot be. <laughs> that cannot be. Uh, because the Son, the Father, and the Spirit share in the same one and unique divine nature, because God in nature is one, the essence of God is one, they must have, and they do have, the same attributes, the same perfect attributes. Which means that not, alone, not only the Son was, was humble and was, uh, had humility as a characteristic of His divine nature, but the Father did as well. And the Holy Spirit did and does as well. Because they have the same attributes. Any other thought would actually be heresy. There can be no difference in attributes among the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Um, so, 
when we speak of the attributes of God, we say God is all-powerful, He's all-wise, He's all-present, He's everywhere present. And then we say that He's, uh, he's perfectly holy, and perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, perfectly good. But do we tend to think of God as perfectly humble? Is the humility of God a forgotten attributes? I would. I have many books at home. Shiri can testify. <laughs> I have all the major theologies that were ever written and, and beyond that. But if I go through the attributes of God, humility is missing in every one of them. Uh, Charna, he wrote 800 pages on the character of God, the attributes of God. But there's no chapter dedicated to his humility. And then we can go through history like that, the history of theology, and that this one attribute um, seems to be um, ascribed to the Son, but not to the Father and the Spirit, so not to God as such in his, in his divine nature. And this is, uh, this is somewhat a problem. <laughs> this is somewhat a, a huge problem uh, because the Bible makes a lot of the humility of God. If we would have but eyes to see, we actually find it everywhere in the, in the Bible, implicitly or explicitly stated. Um, And this is all the more cause of thought because as we see here, we owe to the humility of God our salvation. This is not a, a non-important attribute. There's, there's no attribute in God that's not important. They, they all are. Uh, so this must be true. And it, it is so apparently and manifestly important that Paul says we are saved because God humbled himself. So much time should be spent in reflecting on this one attribute along with all the others. But this should not be um, forgotten um, for sure. So let us contemplate this one attribute of God the humility of God what can we learn from the Bible now this is this can be very mysterious in the very beginning because it's really mind-boggling how can the being who is eternal who created the universe with one word who's everywhere and he has all authority and he's all absolute power and all absolute knowledge. He is in no need of anything. How can such a being be humble? We should be humble because we're just bags of dust. Bags full of dust. But how can he be humble? How do we reconcile this? And in what way is he humble? Uh, now we know that the three persons of the Blessed Trinity 
They existed before the world was was created. Obviously, they're eternal. Um, and the first question that we should ask as we seek in, in, the, in the Word of God is, what role did humility play in eternity past before God created the universe? What did role humility have in the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity? Now it's a tough question. <laughs> the Gospel of John is, I believe, for sure one of the best books in the Bible that can help us to get some glimpses at least of this great mystery. And I'm speaking in this at this time of John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Uh, there is much concerning the role of humility in be- between the three persons of the Trinity in the Gospel of John. If we but keep in mind the subject and reread the Gospel in this light. But let us, let us work this slowly but surely. Among the many things that our Lord prayed in this marvelous prayer... In verse 24, so towards the end, we read this. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So, before the the foundation of the world, the Father loved the Son. So we know that love, as one attributes of God, uh, an attribute that the scripture makes much of, was one of the attributes that obviously was manifested among the Blessed Trinity. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, the Father and the Son loved the Holy Spirit, and it was reciprocal. Reciprocal. Uh, We know that love though we must love ourselves, love in its very nature is altruistic. Love doesn't seek its own, but it seeks especially and gives you know, priority to the good of the other. So it's outwardly oriented. So uh, the uh, thought that the Son communicates here and and, and God is the only one who can tell us what was before eternity, or, I'm sorry, before time. What happened throughout the blessed, in the, um, among the blessed trinity, in eternity. And he, he tells us here, before the foundation of the world, you loved me. So there was love among the three blessed persons of the trinity. But also notice that what he says they may behold the glory which you have given me for you loved me. Um, We know that one of the expressions of love is the desire to to lift the other up. To pick it up. Of course, we're speaking on earthly terms now. uh, to, to, To help the other to look for his well-being, even to the point where you're willing to sacrifice yourself so that the other may be rescued or helped or or lifted up 
from from the dirt. Of course, we're not speaking of this exactly because we're speaking of the the perfect being. But there is a connection between the glory that you have given me because you loved me. Because the Father loved the Son, the Father gave glory to the Son. Uh, that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me. The Father loved the Son so the Father always lifted up the Son and glorified the Son throughout eternity. Rejoicing in Him. Boasting of Him. Because He loved Him. If we go back a few verses in chapter, in verse 5, again, the Lord says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the, the world was. Again, notice, the, father is, the Son is asking the Father to glorify Him with the Father. This means that He would be resurrected and brought to glory at the right hand of God. Uh, that He may again have that shining divine glory which He had from the Father. Glorify Me. Glory, the Father glorifies the Son. The Son is asking the Father to glorify Him with the Father, at the right hand of the Father, the same glory which I had with you before the world was. So we're entering into this marvelous thought that not only the three blessed persons of the Trinity, in eternity, always related in terms of love, perfect love, perfectly loving one another, but that love implied, uh, let me say, a reciprocal exaltation and glorification. If we go back to verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. Lift me up that I may lift you up. <laughs> lift me up so that I may lift you up. Uh, so these are wonderful truths of scripture um, and so what I believe the Bible drives us to is the truth that in eternity past the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit loved one another and glorified one another reciprocally. Reciprocally. Uh, the Father exalting the Son, the Son exalting the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit exalting the Father and the Son. All three glorifying one another. Um, 
We can pick this up in many discourses of our Lord. Look at uh, John 7, verse 16 through 18. Uh, chapter 7, 16 through 18. And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority or on my own. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteous is, unrighteousness is in him. So these are very strong words. The Lord says, the things that I say, I don't make them up on my own. I, I say what He tells me. I derive these words from Him. I am His servant. I am His bond slave. Uh, then He says, He who speaks from Himself, so He who makes Himself His own God, uh, independently, autonomously, seeks His own glory. That's not me. Uh, I don't make things up. I don't, I don't decide. I don't make things, things up on my own. I don't seek my own glory. But there's another one who seeks it. Um, look at uh, chapter 8, verse 50 through 54. Actually, we can begin in uh, 49. Jesus answered... I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my glory, but there is one who seeks my glory and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you are a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never uh, taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Uh, whom do you make yourself to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, that word comes from the doxa word, so if I glorify myself, uh, my glory, my doxa, is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say that He is your God. Constantly, constantly the Lord said, I do not seek my own glory. The, the nature of the Son was not governed by a, a, uh, a selfish desire for His own glory to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. But He sought to glorify the Father as the Father sought to glorify Him and the Spirit likewise. So that the Son can be humble, not seeking His own glory, but exalted as God at the same time. Because it is the Father and the Spirit who glorify Him. Look at uh, chapter 5 of John, verses 16 
through 19. Actually, we could read uh, from 16, be clear. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Uh, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom it will. And so forth. But again, see uh, what he says, especially in verses 19. The Son can do nothing of himself. And I submit to you that what he was saying here is true on both counts. <laughs> as, as the divine Son of the Father, the Son couldn't do anything of himself, autonomously, independently, of the Father. That could never be. The Blessed Trinity always works in perfect harmony, always in perfect harmony. The plan is executed perfectly, because there's perfect harmony, no shadows, no tensions, no contradictions. So the Son, in His divine nature, can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do, because there is perfect harmony in the Trinity. So the Son is not an arrogant Son. He doesn't take initiative personally, uh, forgetting the Father and the Spirit. But they love one another. And they're always seeking to glorify each other. And then he says, For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. So, we could read other verses. And there's another text in John 16 that will clarify this all the more. Uh, And perhaps this afternoon we'll reflect more on the human nature of Christ. This humility as a human being. But here we're dealing more with the divine nature itself. But the picture that the Bible gives us, have you ever had this thought in your mind, how can God be God and not be egoistical? (laughs) How can God be God and not be proud? Well, here is the answer. The Son, not only in time, but in eternity. He didn't seek His own glory, but He sought the glory of the Father and of the Spirit. And so the Father sought the glory of the Son and the Spirit. And so the Spirit sought the glory of of the Son and of the Father. And because 
every one of them sought the other's glory, the whole of the Trinity ends up being exalted. (laughs) But at the same time, none of them is proud, is egoistical, acts independently of the other. Uh, So, no rivalry, no competition (laughs) among the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, There's no attempt by anyone to get ahead of the other, to get the upper hand above the other, or to be greater than the other. No, that cannot be. Because they all want to exalt each other in the Godhead, in the glory of the Godhead. So there's perfect glory, at the same time, perfect humility. As much as the Father wants to glorify the Son, so the Son wants to glorify the Father as God. Same level. Not this way. Not a little bit less. Not a little bit more. But the same level. This is the picture the Bible gives us. And we can immediately see how and why there's never contention Never rivalry, never competition, never friction, never one argument <laughs> in the blessed person among the blessed persons of the Trinity, because there is perfect love, altruistic love that wants to live, lift up the other, because it is perfectly reciprocal. There is no tension. There is no tension. No wonder Paul says, you, you want to get along among yourselves. You want to get along in your marriage. You want to get along in your church. You want to get along about human beings. This is the example. This is the nature. Lift the other up. And if the other does the same thing, you both be lifted up. No rivalry, no contention, no quarrels. This hardly happens on this earth, but this is the model for sure. The Bible gives us, the Bible gives us in a wonderful, wonderful way. Again, we must return to John 5, where we are, verses 19 and 20, uh, because again, there is a connection here with love. Verse 19 and 20, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do. So, the Son never acts independently, but he only acts as he sees the Father act. Uh, there's never a moment that he precedes the Father where he delays, but he's always there perfectly working with the Father. And then he says, For whatsoever he does, the Son also does in like manner. You see? Equality. (laughs) For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does. The The Father does the same thing. The Father does not act by Himself. Just like the Son does not act by Himself. Doesn't take initiative apart from the other. Uh... The Father shows him all things that he himself does. 
there's full and perfect participation in the mind, in the plan, in the carrying out of the plan among the three blessed persons of the Trinity. Why? For the Father loves the Son. For the Father loves the Son, and that's why he shows Him all things that He Himself does. <clears throat> if you don't love, you don't wait, you don't share, uh, you, you go ahead. You forget about the other. But this is not what happens in the Trinity. No. For the Father loves the Son, and that's why shows Him all things that He Himself does. So God is love, and because God is love, God is humble. Because humility is an, is an expression of love. Because love wants to do what? Lift up the other. Oh, if you lift up the other, you're happy yourself. Because <laughs> you take pleasure in seeing the happiness of the other. Just like when we parents tell our children, I'd rather you have this. Because I actually have more joy when you have it than, 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 than me having it. You, 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 you go ahead. You do this. You have this. Sometimes we have to insist as parents, please accept this. No, Daddy, I'm a man. I don't need your $100. Please accept this. Uh, don't rob me of this joy. <laughs> uh, not that we have all these $100, but when we can, we take pleasure. Uh, so, now we're understanding, therefore, the nature of humility as an expression of love. Um, and let us, let us now let us now step from eternity to time. And uh, how did this actually um, you know, ma- manifest itself, this the humility of the Father towards the Son and the Son towards the Father, as we actually step into creation. So, eternity before the world was, and now creation. Since we are in John, we'll stay in John. John has much to say concerning this. Look at uh, chapter 1 of John. And, uh, and of course, today we'll only have time to look at verses. You know, we, we actually spend about a year and a half as a church just to reflect on the humility of God. It was about five or six years ago. Uh, this captivated us for a long time. Um, so we only have time just for some brief thought that I, I trust will provoke you into thinking and growing in, in the Lord as we all need to do. But have you noticed, for example, it says in chapter 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him Nothing was made that was made. You remember? The Father does nothing without involving the Son. That's exactly what it says here. Of everything that was made, nothing was made without the Son. The the Son was involved in the whole creative process 
All things were made through Him and without Him. Nothing was made. Nothing was made. Perfect harmony. The planning and the execution of the plan. Secondly, notice that all things were made through Him. Through Him. Now think of that. What does that mean and what does that imply? <laughs> well, we have some text of Scripture that can help us, like 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You remember? Very quickly, let me run over there, and then we'll come back to John or perhaps to other Scriptures. But in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, oh, Paul would put it this way, verse 6, For us there is only one God, the Father, out of whom, the, the, the Greek word is ex, out of whom are all things, the source, the fountain of all created reality, is the Father. And we for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom the preposition is different, is dia in, in the Greek language, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So, all things are out of the Father through the Son. That's the doctrine of Scripture. Out of the Father as a source, as the one who planned it all, and then the Son, the one who created all. Because through Him, all things were made. This is the perpetual doctrine of Scripture. <clears throat> so, now imagine this. Uh, why did it happen so? Well, it happened so, I firmly believe, because of the humility of the Father. It's like if we can translate this in human terms, my dear son, I'm going to do the planning, okay? And you, you also are part of this, but I want you to be the executor of the plan. I want you to do all this. Because all that the marvel of uh, your attributes that you share with me are going to be displayed through the creation that you will make. <laughs> so that human eyes one day will see what you have done. And by beholding the works of your hand, they will also behold the work of my hands. <laughs> because we are one. But I want you to be at the central stage. I want you to be on the stage, to be visible. I want for them to know me through you. I want them to, to, to know you, to see you. And as they shall see you, they will know me. Because anyone who sees the Son, sees the Father. Because they're perfectly equal in their attributes, in their character, in their nature. So, the Father remains hidden. It is this doctrine of Scripture. You are a hidden God, says Isaiah. The Father remains hidden in His person, but He reveals Himself through the Son. He wants all the eyes to see Him, to behold Him. And He wants all the knees to bow to Him and recognize that He is His Son. His beloved Son. And that, this remaining in hide, uh, so to speak, what is it? 
it is a manifestation of humility. You know, I'm thinking, since we're at 1 Corinthians, this does not apply to God, obviously. But Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not parade itself. Love does not want to be uh, at center stage, admired and applauded. He wants others to be. And this is what we see if we can use this form of language. And we're, we're walking the very tight rope here. <laughs> we need to be careful what we say. But did God did want to demonstrate His glory in His creation. Obviously, this is a state of fact. But if we, if we enter into the dynamics of the Trinity as much as the Scripture reveals and no further, this is what we see. Uh, the doctrine of scripture is always this Uh, we saw John all things were made through him we saw Paul let us look at Hebrews in verse in chapter 1 Hebrews in chapter 1 God at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he also appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. See? Not the Father directly per se as the person of the Trinity, but through the Son. Through the Son. God always revealed himself through the Son and can only be known through the Son. You say, well, no, we can also know something of God through creation, but who made creation? The Son. When you, be, when you behold creation, the wonders of creation, you're beholding the works of the Son. And by understanding that these works manifest the attributes of the Son, you also know they are the attributes of the Father, because they are one, one. And the, the glory that the Father wants to give to Christ is everywhere here. Uh, through whom he made the worlds. But he also says, whom he appointed heir of all things. What is this? Humility. Humility. I want you to create a universe of reality. <laughs> and I want you to be the heir of it all. You see this desire to lift up and to glorify? This is what we see. Of course, when we say, I want you to create and to be the heir of all things, uh, we're talking about the Alpha and the Omega of all this design. Everything was created through the Son and for the Son. This is exactly what Paul says. But before we go to Paul, let us read verse 3 who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, the person of God, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and having become much better than the angels, as He 
has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What is he saying? He says that Christ is all in all. He is the one who created everything. He's the one who's the, uh, the owner of everything because everything was done, was created through him and for him. But he's also the Savior. He's also the Savior. So everything that God has done from the very beginning to the very end will do it through Christ. That through Christ we may know God. We may know God. Again, we mention Paul, and we're thinking of Colossians in chapter 1. He says just as much over there. Uh, Colossians in chapter 1, I'm speaking of uh, verse uh, 16. Verse 16. Uh, For by him all things were created. Uh, that word by is actually dia, so it's through, through Him. Through Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. See that? Through Him and for Him. God had the Son to create the universe for Him. That it would belong to Him as an heir of the Father. That's humility. If the Father, this is only uh, uh, a fall, of course, but let me say, if one had a different nature, egoistical, he would have said, you're on the backstage, I'm going to be in the front. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to show you how to do it. This is how you do it. Not like you. And I want all this to be just about me, not you. But was this the sentiment of the Father? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, and of course, if we go to um, John, the Gospel of John, again, chapter 5, we were there just a few moments ago. Look at again what he says. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and He shows Him all things that He Himself does. And then look at 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Why? You know, we we tend to like judging, don't we? We want to judge. But the Father, He renounced all judgment. And He ended all judgment over to the Son. Humility. Humility. Why did He do that? that all should honor, glorify the Son, just as they glorify the Father. See? (laughs) The Father does not want to be glorified above the Son. No. He wants for the Son to be glorified as He is glorified by us who know Him. So we find this everywhere in Scripture. It is a matter of wonder that we... Meditate so little on this is everywhere in the Gospel of John. We only read a few passages, and it is so important. Um, let me uh, just go to John two. Let us see something from another point of view here. The the desire of the Son to glorify the Father. Um, speaking of verse. 13 of chapter 2. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the, uh, the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of, men- of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, uh, The zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now, these are strong words. Uh, we rarely see the Son acting with such strength. We could even say almost violence as he overturns the table. I'm sure he was not very gentle about this. He did what had to be done. Uh, God can be violent, we know from Scripture. And He was here. But this is so rare. It happens so rarely. I mean, the, the son took a lot against himself, didn't he? How much abuse did he take? Oh, much. Even to the shame of the cross. Naked and tortured in agony. He drank it all. He drank it all. It's like you were saying, you can do anything to me. But you honor my Father's name. Don't you dare turn this temple into a house of thieves. This is my Father's temple. There is a jealousy that comes out here. And it's the same jealousy that we see in Matthew chapter 12, I believe. Um, Have you ever noticed this? This is exactly the same sentiment You know, the Pharisees uh, accused Jesus of being demon-possessed and casting out devils with the power of Satan, whereas the Lord was casting out devils with the Holy Spirit. Well, look at how he reacted. Verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy uh, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. You want to look for a scripture that proves the divinity of the Spirit? Here it is. <laughs> Here it is. He's saying, you can insult me, you can blaspheme me, you can... You can say whatever and do whatever because I'm here to die. (laughs) He didn't put it that way because it will not be revealed until that time. But he says, don't you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That will not be forgiven you. And again, we see this jealousy because he was willing to lower himself down and lower himself down. But he wanted to see the Father glorified and the Holy Spirit glorified. That's, that's a beautiful study of B.B. Warfield on the emotional nature of the, of, of, of the Son of God, of Christ. Beautiful studies that should be you know, pursued and, and considered. But again, if we see the Holy Spirit's attitude, like in John, again in John, such a marvelous work. First in John 15, and this really will help us all the more clarify what we're saying. 
I, I realized, because I, I realized it five years ago, when we began to go down this trail, these are difficult thoughts. You, you have to be careful what you say. But as far as the Bible will take us and no further, we need to go uh, in the grace of God. But in the chapter 15 of John, in uh, verse uh, 15, the Lord says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. Again, notice, I've made known to you, I've communicated to you all the things that I heard. Didn't speak on his own, not independently, not autonomously, but in constant harmony with his Father. Never tension, never a contradiction. But then, and what is that humility? He didn't step ahead, he didn't act autonomously, so he was humble because he loved his father perfectly. Now look at the Spirit in chapter 16 and verses 12. The Lord says to his disciples, to, to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. Now look at that. That's very important because that theologically confirms what we've been talking about. You remember when they said the Son cannot do anything on His own? You say, is that speaking of His humanity or His divinity? Well, there's no question here because the Holy Spirit never became a man. It can only be speaking of His divinity as the divine Spirit of God for such He is he will not speak on his own. Here I have a word added authority, which is it's possible, but it's not part of the text. He will not speak on his own. It means the Holy Spirit never acts independently, just like the Son never acts independently in their divine nature. But whatever he hears, he will speak, just like I did. Just like I did. I only spoke what I heard in perfect harmony and dependency on my Father's will. And the Holy Spirit does the same. But, here's the difference. He will tell you things to come. He will, oh my, look at that, glorify me. For He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. What does that mean? That the Spirit will tell will inspire the apostles only as he heard, as he hears the words from Christ, from the Son of God, as the Son of God hears them from the Father. So that the whole Trinity is involved in the inscripturation of the Word of God. <laughs> it's the Father, the Son, the Spirit who dwells in the hearts, dwelt in the hearts of the apostles, and they understood and wrote Scripture. So, and what is it that, uh, what, not what makes the Holy Spirit act in this way, nothing makes the Holy Spirit, but why does the Holy Spirit act this way? Because He's humble. If He weren't humble, He'd go ahead. He would speak on His own. He would act independently, autonomously, because I can do it. I'm able. I'm above. 
I'm first. I'm greater. I'm greater. But none of the three persons of the Trinity think that way. Their visceral (laughs) sentiment is humility among themselves. Perfect humility, perfect equality, perfect collaboration. Not only that, He will glorify me. You see that? How does He glorify the Son? By not speaking on His own, but only by saying what He hears from the Son. And in the fact that the Holy Spirit takes only what He hears from the Son, glorifies the Son. (laughs) Because it shows that the Son is God. (laughs) Because the Spirit of God only transmits, communicates what He hears from the Son. Just like earlier, what a wonderful text to prove the divinity of the Holy Spirit, this proves the divinity of the Son of God. He will glorify me. I mean, He will glorify me. For He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So He clarifies. Uh, I'm not ultimate. I'm not alone. I myself am with the Father. All that is the Father's is mine. All that is mine is the Holy Spirit. It's our spirits. So we act in perfect harmony because there's perfect humility. It's perfect humility. Uh, One text I would like to point out to you, but I will do it this afternoon. Um, we must wrap it all up we've been looking at many things but what we did this morning we kind of prepare the ground for this afternoon and sometimes especially when you have a package you want to communicate you cannot do it all together so we need to break it up in two parts but this, this morning we elaborated the biblical theological concepts so that this afternoon when we will consider the humility of the Son of God is an incarnate state then we will be able to derive more also on a practical note for ourselves how are we to behave if God acts in this way perhaps here without you know without the perhaps (laughs) here we have the key really to the resolution of any sort of problem among human beings when they fuss and they fight and they argue here's the solution we can learn it by beholding our God oh perfect harmony because there's perfect love and perfect humility among them may we be more like they are among ourselves as the Holy Spirit dwells in us a spirit of humility if he's really in us. Amen.